Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint. Gabby here. Now, this is one of my special expert-only episodes where we deep dive into a topic with someone who's dedicated their lives to it. Today, our expert is Kate Moyle, and sex is our topic. Now, depending on whether your face is just flushed up or not, there'll be different levels of comfort when it comes to discussing this area of our health and wellness. But Kate is a psychosexologist and relationship therapist who specialises in helping people with difficulties in their sex lives and with their sexuality. Midlife can pose a number of challenges. Your body might not quite feel like your own anymore. Sometimes libido has gone AWOL. Perhaps illness or treatment has got in the way of intimacy. Or perhaps you've just been married for a really long time. In this episode, we're going to be picking out topics from Kate's book, The Science of Sex. Every question about your sex life answered. And of course, putting your questions to her. Kate Moyle, welcome to The Midpoint. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on, Gabby. Tell me a little bit about your incentive to write the book. It's a very easy to dip into book, although I have to say wasn't so easy when I was on the train and uh, every page I opened I was seeing the woman over my shoulder looking and thinking and there must be a page that she's not going to think I'm a complete sexaholic and what am I <laughs> what am I doing here um, but it is a really I think as a reference book it, people will find it very easy to use yeah I think the intention of the book and I can understand with that with the train because obviously it's got a lot of illustrations um, <laughs> which I think kind of adds to the digestibility of it but really it felt like a way of kind of giving people the sex education that everyone feels that they, or describes at least to me, feeling that they didn't have. And it's slightly part of my mission to kind of do myself out of a job, <laughs> which is that almost everybody that I work with describes this sense of shame and not feeling that they understand enough about sex and that the conversation isn't happening. And I believe that if we changed that with resources like the book or podcasts or just better conversations and education that less people would struggle with sex and so it was it was part of my mission to do that this podcast obviously is called the midpoint so a lot of the people who listen the majority are in the mid period of life that doesn't necessarily mean that they've been in long relationships or long marriages some people are coming out of those and heading into a new world of dating again other people might not have been together for that long with somebody so we shouldn't assume that when I'm putting some questions to you that come from them however the first one does pertain to that and I should say as well that all these questions we're going to give anonymously because most people said I'd like to ask a question but I don't want anybody to know which goes back to your whole uh, kind of uh, idea that there's a lot of shame and uh, a lot of embarrassment still surrounding questions and I can understand obviously why so if you would Kate it'd be great if we could kind of get going on some of these listener questions what to do about libido imbalance for a couple who've been married for nearly 20 years so the implication being obviously one person is really up for it and the other person not so much and this is something I hear about and I kind of have conversations with people about quite a lot 
it's one of the most common things that brings couples to therapy, that couples struggle with. And one of the things I think that we'd argue as sexologists is that actually it's much more unlikely for you to be perfectly sexually matched than it is for you to be perfectly sexually matched. And one of the things I talk about is likening it to food. We don't go to the same restaurants and both expect to choose exactly the same thing every time and to for that predictability, for that for us to be perfectly matched. But when it comes to desire or and um, when we talk about imbalance, often it's to do with amount of sex mm. or regularity. And I think if we've been together for 20 years, one of the things that we're going to struggle with is knowing how to change something. We've got into a routine, a way of being, a pattern. And so that probably feels like the biggest challenge. But one of the big things that we see is that this is about how we approach desire and initiating. And something to do with that is that we think that once it changes, that it's this irreversible or unchangeable part of our lives. And actually what we can do is we can improve things by changing little things. So we talk about sexual currency, which is anything we do with a partner that isn't sex, but is something that contributes to it or keeps a charge alive. And I think that it's about changing those things, but also it's about how we address with our partner of 20 years that we want to change this. Because so many of us just go along with the assumption that this is how how things have been, and that we can't do anything about it. And I think that first conversation has to be, what are we going to do about it? Because this won't change itself. And I think that's the other thing. We sit and we wait for something to happen. And we know with sex, because it feels so difficult a lot of the time, that we have to start it ourselves. So when you say sexual currency, what kind of things are you talking about? We're talking about kind of reaching out to each other, eye contact, kissing, touching, flirting, that... It's those approaches to each other as well. It's that giving each other our attention because so many of us, and we're all guilty of it, we we kind of sit on the sofa both on our phones or with screens or we're distracted. We miss those cues between each other that could start something. The bigger gap we have, which could be slightly closed or bridged by things like a kiss or an extended kiss or a hug or a handhold or a touch, something playful, the bigger that gap becomes, the bigger it feels in terms of, or more challenging in terms of sex to close, because how do we start something if we don't have those little things to lean into? Okay. So in terms of the the starting kind of point for somebody who feels that there is this imbalance, is it a conversation? Would you say, look, are you, are you happy that we don't have sex as much as we used to? I mean, is that too aggressive a way to kind of go in on this? I think starting it with... I'd really like us to talk about our sex life. Like, how would you feel about that? Or And noticing that even if we've been together 20 years, that means that we might have never talked about it. I think that the common assumption is that we might have had those conversations. I've spoken to so many people who've said, you know, we've never talked about sex until we had a problem. And I think that's that's part of it, is we assume if we have to talk about it, that there must be a problem. The, the, the by nature of talking about it is problematic. So the thing that I always say as well is do it outside of the bedroom and not when you're just about to start having sex or have just had sex, but do it at a non-sexual time where there's no pressure to have to do something immediately. And I think it's, you know, what would you like to be different? What are we enjoying? And also doing it in a positive and affirmative way, which is, shall we try something together? 
rather than it being received as a criticism, which is never going to start a conversation well. No. And I, I guess what a lot of people might be thinking is, well, is there an amount that is right? And you write about this in the book, don't you? Mm. Kind of, you know, because one person's um, active sex life is another person's, you know, kind of, oh my God, you're almost celibate, you know. So what is a healthy sex life? <laughs> the kind of non-clinical answer really is whatever works for you, because for some couples, they might have sex twice a year, really enjoy it, and that'd be perfect for them. But it leads back to, I think, the original question, which is the, the discrepancy between people. But if you ask people what they think the amount of sex they should be having is, everybody gives the answer, I guess, once a week. That's just that <laughs> is the answer that everybody seems to say. Um, and the reality is not very many people are having sex once a week. And I think also something that we have to think about is how we're defining sex. You know, most people would say intercourse, but that's not relevant for some couples. Some people who are having, for example, kind of fertility treatments or cancer treatments or have certain disabilities, it's not their preference, but they can have really healthy sex lives just in a different way. So it's also about how you define define it as a couple. I suppose it's a, an am, amount of intimacy for people, isn't it? That, you know, that, that connection, as you say, it doesn't necessarily mean penetrative sex, but it's the intimacy that they want and they're not, mm. they're not feeling the other person is perhaps wanting as much, which is the libido discrepancy. And have you seen couples where that imbalance can shift? after time you know because 20 years feels like a long time and I guess as people think oh, well there's not much point in me trying to you know change this now have you seen that work yeah and I think that we do especially as therapists because people are approaching us trying to create changes but it's I think it's back to that point of it's not going to change itself and I think the amount of times I've heard I just thought this would sort itself out you know I think that's the kind of thing we hear all the time and we know that this is two people's agendas, two people's feelings, two people's assumptions about what the other person is also thinking and feeling, which particularly if we've been with someone a long time, we struggle to inject a different idea or think that something different might be going on. We think we know them so well that we must know the answer better probably than they do or before they even say anything. Okay, thank you for that. Let's move on to uh, a question which uh, I think a lot of people who've had children and maybe a long time ago will understand this. This sounds like it's quite a fresh uh, question in terms of the, the recent uh, birth of a child. How do you bring back sex after having children? And I was when I read this question, and my kids are 18, I was trying to remember, you know, that time. And it's very hard to kind of think back and go, what, what actually happened? I can't remember. You know, I remember, I remember thinking immediately after giving birth to twins, well, how will that ever happen again? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone has that feeling. <laughs> but, um, so somebody here obviously wanting to do it, wanting to get back into it, but feeling for some reason it's not quite right. Yeah, I think slowly is the first thing. And actually, a colleague of mine has just written a brilliant book about this, which is coming out soon called How to Have a Sex Life After Kids. And I think that, again, we're so stuck in that assumption bit. And also, there's a lot of narratives about your sex life being ruined by having children and that everything's going to be different. And it might feel different, and it probably will at least temporarily. But I think that that slowly and kind of starting to be sexual together first before kind of jumping straight back into penetrative sex, particularly if you've had um, a difficult birth or you might have had an episiotomy 
or stitches or feel that your body is really uncomfortable. We know that breastfeeding also causes vaginal dryness, something that we don't often talk about because it changes your estrogen. Well, that's something that obviously a lot of menopausal women understand, Mm. but I didn't know that was affected by... uh, So you can do pessaries and various things if you're menopausal. Can you do the same thing if you're breastfeeding or will that affect your body's ability to create the milk? Uh, The best thing to do is just use a really good water-based lubricant. It's to do with basically the changes in estrogen levels temporarily. And so it's it can make sex painful. But if we don't equip people with that information, then they assume that the problem is them. They then feel ashamed and embarrassed about what they're experiencing. And that is a lack of motivation for sex. We're not we're not we're not going to move towards something which causes us pain and discomfort. And we feel we feel embarrassed about and of course, as well, the other thing, I, I guess, is, you know, you, all those physical things you talk about, sometimes the other person doesn't see immediately that person in the same way. There's that whole kind of, you know, mother kind of image that, you know, then changes that person's perception of usually the woman, obviously, they're with. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think it's about addressing what's going on, but also trying to kind of meet each other in a couple way, not a, if it's a man and a woman in the relationship, yeah, a mum and dad way. And I think we all know that. We know that kind of feeling of this isn't sexy, we're sleep deprived, you know, there's piles of washing everywhere, it feels like our routine has gone out, you know, particularly if our roles have changed in a relationship as well, or, you know, we might have both been working, we've had a change to that, you know, particularly, you know, we saw this with parents in the pandemic, how hard it was to feel desire. And I think that it's about trying to shift our context. So we know that sex always happens in context and it can be quite hard to to shift that when we feel that everything is happening all at once. And so it might be about, okay, how do we make a bit of time for us as a couple? And it could be something non-sexual, like being like, could we ask a family member to look after the baby and can we just go for a drink or a walk for half an hour Mm-hmm. so that we can kind of meet ourselves as a couple again. Yeah, reconnecting as a couple mm. um, and remembering that you're a couple before you had the child or children yeah. or, you know, wherever you are with that. And being able to touch for pleasure and connection. And it's often something that couples lose when they're trying to conceive, particularly if it's taking a bit longer or they've experienced mm. difficulties or miscarriage. <laughs> well, it kind of, sex can become a chore, it can become very routine, particularly around ovulation, but also it kind of moves from fun to functional and that happens Mm. incredibly quickly. And it's probably, there's probably a good chance that the last few weeks of pregnancy you might not have been as sexually active. Um, I mean, you might be, but there's, you know, it's it's uncomfortable if you're, you know, carrying very large and all those things that can affect a woman's desire to have mm. sex. Although if you're running over, um, having sex allegedly brings on the uh, labour, but um, yeah, you might not have had sex for a while. So again, there's another, there's another kind of barrier or a step to, to kind of cross, isn't there? Yeah, there are lots. And some people don't have sex their entire pregnancies. They're very anxious or they feel, you know, really ill. You know, they feel really stressed, really... There's so many factors. And, you know, we talk about this in therapy a lot, about these layers. It's never just, the you know, the one thing. Mm. Okay, next uh, issue, which, again, you write about in the book. I do think it was this page that was open when a man walked on the train and looked over my shoulder. How do fetishes emerge? (laughs) 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 And you write about different fetishes in the book as well, don't you? First of all, explain what a fetish is. So a fetish is 
I suppose that we think about it as a bit of a detraction, but it's basically a an association with something which is not usually sexual. So a non-genital body part, you know, an item of clothing, an object, which can create peak arousal or desire. So it can be really exciting for us. And the science around fetish is, is not actually concrete. So we have no kind of exact understanding of why, but we think that it could be to do with kind of positive association. So all the intensity of something happening and us as experiencing it as erotic or having really strong feelings towards it or it being repeated. But we we suspect that it's a, a mix of lots of things, you know, like personal preferences, perhaps genetics or positive experiences. But um, some of the common ones that we hear around body parts are things like feet or mm. hands. Yeah, the feet um, one. The foot one is really... I, I noticed it on social media because you get various people asking you for pictures of your feet. Why? <laughs> I don't think we know how to explain. I mean, one theory is that it's um, in the area of the brain that corresponds to different point of body parts that the foot is next to the genitals. But I don't think oh. it's a, it's not a clinically proven um, theory. What? I think so. That if it's the brain was one. a map, and the the part that is the genitals is one country, the next country is the foot. Yeah, so we call it the somatosensory <laughs> cortex, and so right. it's basically and what it does is it maps out the different kind of amounts of nerve endings and then how much kind of brain space there are and how those two things correspond in okay, the body. Okay, starting to make a bit more sense. What about if the fetish to your partner is, you know, disgusting and they, you know, how do you how do you kind of balance that out? Yeah, I think it's it's really common for people not to share fetishes and so some people might kind of explore it on their own or it might be something that they use in fantasies. Um it really is it's kind of almost back to the food analogy, you know, we have all these different preferences and I think when it comes to sex particularly, we can shame a lot. And that's where people have lots of problems because they feel bad for something. And sometimes in a way that can also make it more erotic. It's that kind of the forbidden. And sometimes in couples, that couples might be able to negotiate including those things in their sex lives together, but often, often not. And it's it's about the communication, but obviously it might be, look, this is just something that doesn't work for me or that I don't want to do. Is is sadomasochism the kind of next tier of fetishism, if you like? So BDSM is in that kind of kink fetish space. BDSM, yes, but, just explain the acronym. Mm. So it can be kind of two definitions. So we've got bondage discipline or domination, sadism or submission and masochism. That's that kind of power play, often about dynamics. But importantly, these things are always done with consent, so consentable parties. And do you... From your experience, is that something that somebody would kind of have uh, as a preference their whole life? Do they grow into that? You know, is it something that they, because presumably you can kind of bring that up in a relationship. If the other person's not up for that, does that just have to be quelled and quashed for, you know, for the rest no, of your life? No, it can be either. And some people develop it and some people might have it introduced to them by a partner, for example. So it might be something that they start to explore. And it can be even things like playing with the senses. So playing with eye masks or closing things down and Again, it might be that someone is really interested in that type of kind of sexual play and a partner introduces it to them. And it might be something they start to explore together, but it might be something that someone might have never done their whole lives, but it's something that they start to, to start to enjoy. And the question was, how do they emerge? I'm not sure from what you've said that you kind of understand really yet how they emerge. Yeah, I think that we don't know. It might be that someone just doesn't know why they like something and then they start to do it more. And it offers them that kind of peak arousal, that peak pleasure, that peak desire. It might be that 
they try something new with a partner and they're like, wow, I love this. This really works for me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The next question is a bit kind of covered it in the other answers, actually, but I think maybe we can give it a go. How do you find your mojo? I think, I mean, I, I love the um, the understanding of what the word mojo is. I think from my perspective, we talked about it as sexual wellness. It's really what, how do I find what works for me? How do I find what makes me feel good sexually? And Emily Nagoski, who is a kind of icon in our world, talks about how pleasure is the measure. And I think it's, the perfect phrase for summing that up because desire which is our motivation to be sexual our kind of psychological interest in it is only going to be kind of increased when we enjoy things when things make us feel good and arousal is the body's kind of physical process of preparing for sex so we see that those two things align and it's about working out what makes us feel comfortable sexually confident sexually I think sex education across the ages is a really important part of that, which is about how do we understand sex? So many of us are kind of given this school education, kind of sex ed, awkward definition of sex, have it kind of plonked in front of us and don't really know what to do with it. And then we we learn through trial and error a lot of the time as well. And we can educate ourselves about sex at any age. And the other thing is things like exploring our bodies, body knowledge, which is important for our health as well. And the other part of it is if we're in a relationship, being able to communicate with partners, which I'd argue is probably the hardest mm. part of all. Yeah. And probably the sign when you can that you feel you in a different level of intimacy and relationship and a sign that you might be with the right person, I guess, when that communication is good. And in terms of the physical, so the, the mojo you've described kind of well I think what that might be and how you, how you kind of find it I think it's important as well at this stage of, of our lives if you're in the midpoint and you're kind of uh, late 30s 40s early 50s and you're heading towards for women you know perimenopause menopause keeping yourself sexually active I read through the 40s and into your 50s means you're more likely to then keep sexually active beyond your menopause so basically if you're running into your menopause sexually active, try and kind of keep that going because you're more likely on the other side to have a healthy sex life. I think it's about the, the psychological association with sex. So we talk about sex as something biopsychosocial. So we've got the biological components, the psychological components and the social components. Now, if sex is something we feel awkward about, embarrassed about, ashamed of, which so many of us do, we're going to avoid it. 
Whereas if it's something that we feel is a part of our lives or that we approach, that it works for us, that it makes us feel good, that it makes us feel close to a partner if we have one, or you know, to ourselves if we don't, then it's something that we're much more likely to include as a part of our lives comfortably. And um, I interviewed on my podcast, Meg Matthews, and she said her gynecologist, when she was going into menopause, recommended that she regularly masturbated because it was taking blood flow to the vagina, it was keeping the tissue oxygenated, but also it was about pleasure and about enjoying herself. And I think, you know, we know that with menopause, there's 34 common symptoms, most of which don't make people feel good. You know, things like feeling like you're really struggling to remember things, that your sleep's being disturbed, that you're having hot flashes. These are not things that make people feel comfortable, confident. You might be struggling at work. You know, they're all things that make us question ourselves and we don't often feel like in a good place sexually when we're experiencing all of that. Yeah, if you've associated feeling top of your game with sex, then you're certainly not, if you're in those kind of like feelings in perimenopause, going to feel top of your game, are you? But the benefits of regular sex, it is physically better for you for some of the reasons that Meg and you have kind of alluded to there yes and it's about you know we know that the um, neurochemicals released during orgasm and touch that they can do things like aid sleep that they buffer cortisol levels which is the stress hormone but that also pleasure just makes us feel good but if we're in a relationship that can make us feel connected that kind of feeling socially supported is really good for our health um so there's lots of a real whole range of health benefits Okay, this is, uh, I'm sure, one that a lot of people who've had children may have come close to, if not uh, directly relate to. Help! My son is 12 years old and walked in on an intimate moment with my partner. How do I address this? I think the first thing to do is to address it. I think everyone's instinct in that moment would be to never discuss it ever again, both probably the child and the parent. And I think that the the way for the parent to do it is to address it and just to say, you know, that was something that was something private for us. You shouldn't have seen that, but I'd like to talk to you about it. There's an amazing organization called Outspoken Sex Ed for Parents that offers this kind of advice because however much we prepare for these conversations, we never know when the moments are going to happen. Um, And I think explaining about it in an age appropriate way, but also allowing... Mm. At what age do you not? You know, I think five-year-olds, you can get away with mummy and daddy were playing horses, can you not? Probably <laughs> 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 just about. <laughs> because I, think, I, I don't know. think I'd want to talk to my five-year-old about sex. A 12-year-old is on the precipice of puberty and, and yeah. probably knows a lot more than you think they do, so you can probably be quite honest with. Yeah, and would have had some level of sex education at school. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's also about saying you know, do you have any questions? And also saying, can I come back to you with the answer? I think as parents, we always feel we have to have it mastered in the moment. And, you know, as a parent myself and someone who talks about this for a living, I still stumble (laughs) when I get asked the questions. And, you know, we all have the fear of getting it wrong. Mm. And I think you can also say... You have the fear of sending your child into years of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, (laughs) don't you? Where did your your sexual uh, hang-up start? Well, I was eight and I walked in on my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that there's the... They are going to kind of be curious, but shaming them for having a question is one of the kind of... Well, the most likely to kind of cause a difficulty things we can do. And trying to approach it in a normalising, you know, that was awkward for all of us, wasn't it, kind of way 
did you need me to explain anything about that? Do you kind of understand about us? And in a way, you could use it as a quite a good way of platforming a conversation about sex mm. in general. Yeah, that's a good question. Do you, under, do you understand that? Because actually that would open up a potentially a really interesting conversation. Mm. But I think it's knowing it's going to be uncomfortable for everyone and just kind of rolling with that would yeah. be a good way to a good way to start it. Yeah. And I guess it also depends on how open you've been as a family before that moment in terms of things like nudity and, you know, just kind of body confidence. All those things feed in, don't they, to a child's image of what's going on with their parents. I think from a very young age, if you see your parents being intimate, and I just mean touching hands or hugging or, you know, kissing, then you kind of build up an image of them as being people who you know, when you start to understand what sex is, you see you know, there's people who have sex. Whereas if you never see them touching, it might come as a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we kind of, we start to understand about sex from both the said and the unsaid. And, you know, children, you know, a lot of young people now have smartphones and kind of access to the internet and things like that, which changes the landscape completely. But we we do start to kind of pick up these inferences of things. And I think that having conversations and I think, you know, the book, I think lots of parents have said to me, I bought it for myself so I know how to have these conversations is really important. And there are great sex educators kind of specifically targeting helping parents because sex education happens in schools, but it doesn't happen to the parents. But then those conversations often come, the questions particularly yeah. come home. Well, I was thinking about even this 12-year-old boy, he's probably, or he might have siblings or cousins, you know, and he mm. might be hearing, they might be younger, they might be older. So that's also where you've got to think, isn't it, about when, what you're telling a child? Because you kind of know if you tell a 12-year-old, he's going to go and tell his eight-year-old brother, you know. <laughs> so, so, Or you've got to warn him not to say, you know, the kind of things you're talking about. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting area for sure. And as are those first conversations you have openly about sex with your kids. And I do think the book is really probably for any child who's kind of over the age of puberty and talking about sex is really suitable for them as well to, to have an understanding, isn't it? And normalising so many things as you do. Okay, let's move on to another question. Um, <laughs> I like this question. Is there ever such a thing as too much sex? I also have high blood pressure. Should I slow down? I mean, what do we mean by too much or too little? I think this is part of, part of the subjectivity of sex. I think interesting we sex is so subjective but we're so obsessed with trying to objectively measure it and experts would argue that it's a, a red herring is to measure the amount or frequency of sex as kind of the measure of it whereas actually how much we enjoy the sex we're having would be a better one but if you're thinking you need to slow down then probably it's not a bad idea but there's lots of ways that you could do that and it might be just slowing the pace obviously blood pressure does raise during sex but it's more about if it interferes with your daily life or if your partner doesn't want that same level of sex I mean this person might be not having just one partner so mm, there might be a few partners involved mm. um, and I guess on the blood pressure the best thing is to speak to your doctor yes about that any concerns and doctors people I think feel so embarrassed about talking to their doctors about anything to do with sex and your doctors are fully aware that those questions are going to come up so particularly around things like menopause as well and you know with men as testosterone decreases as they age those questions are going to come up and it's always best to talk to your doctor and particularly don't self-diagnose or you know kind of self-medicate speaking of medication and i was really surprised we didn't get a question about this actually um because i think a lot is talked about now thankfully in terms of the menopause and how that affects women's physical uh, the area of the body the vagina that they you know they kind of how they feel about that if they have vaginal dryness going uh, towards a sex their sex life but also um, i think on the other side 
and we know kind of things like my husband had prostate cancer, how that can affect erectile function. But actually, erectile function can be affected by lots of different things in a man's life. And and this is the age where it, it is potentially going to be coming into sharper focus. And now uh, there's a lot of stuff you can buy over the counter to help, obviously. But if, if somebody is starting to experience erectile dysfunction, what what were the first steps you would you would say they should they should take should they want to kind of keep having an active sex life? Yeah, so we know that the um, increase in occurrence of erectile dysfunction is in line with aging. So we see a trend for those two things kind of happening. But one thing to say is if you are noticing that you have lost morning erections, so what we call nocturnal erections, which are erections that happen during sleep, particularly during REM sleep, and often people wake up with an erection in the morning. Now again, these naturally decline with age, but if they disappear suddenly, then that's absolutely something to take to your doctor, to a medical professional, because it can be an indicator of other things going on, such as cardiac problems and problems with blood flow. So it's really important. And, you know, really the bottom line here is if you're worried about things at all, go and see your doctor, go and see your GP. But uh, things like that can impact testosterone particularly are higher levels of fat, particularly around the midriff. So that can impact testosterone. Um, We see that diabetes and erectile dysfunction are also connected and some other medical conditions. But particularly that you can, there are groups of medications called PDE5 inhibitors. So those are things like Viagra and Cialis. They also get recommended, but there can be other products which are not medical, which can Mm. help. And are those products likely to help every man or are some people kind of more receptive and uh, see quicker re- results than others? Yeah, some people, it's also about the way that they work is that because they're in inhibitors, we have to start the reaction. So I think what often happens is people take them and they kind of sit and wait to suddenly <laughs> feel spontaneously turned on and for things to happen. And that's where the information about how we use these medications is really important because we need to start the kind of process of sexual excitement and for them to then kind of kick in. You don't just take it and wait for it to happen. You've, you've got to actually be. Mm. And, and I guess you can practice on your own to start off with if you don't want to kind of risk feeling embarrassed if it doesn't yeah. work when you're with a partner. And I, and I suppose as well, if people are entering into new relationships at this stage of life and also experiencing... I was going to use the wrong word and say a rise in, in, in impotency, but are finding they're not getting those morning erections. That's, you know, it's a tricky combination, isn't it? Yeah, and the anxiety that we feel about struggling with sex can kind of override the whole thing. So if someone is really, really acutely anxious, and we talk about something performance anxiety, that can be enough to interrupt the functioning of these medications. And... I think it's a really important thing to know, but there's lots of different variations of them. So if you are someone that is struggling and a certain one isn't working for you, do go and speak to your doctor. Um, so some some of them are now over the counter at places like Boots and Superdrug. But if you're worried, going to speak to a medical professional first is important. And there might be that you're taking different medications and so they're not recommended. And it, it's about lining up what works for you. Just taking this that question we just had about um, high blood pressure and slowing down one stage further, is there any scientific data or evidence that having a, a good, healthy sex life into old age increases your longevity? I haven't seen any research, but it's, you know, it is exercise. So it can be a part of that. But I think that it's about, you know, things that about kind of being happier also with your life and feeling good and we know that pleasure is something that's good for us on multiple levels 
And the thing that I was kind of uh, interested to read in your book as well about various groups. Um, so you have a, three people having sex. And I don't mean together at the same time, but this is three people who might all be in sexual relationships with each other and four people who might be in sexual relationships with each other. What are the names for those again? As uh, so ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. So, right. How common um, is that? I don't know what the stats are in terms of it being common, but I think we're definitely seeing people exploring different relationship models in a new way. It, 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 I say in a new way. These kind of models of relationships yeah. have, are, are very old, but I think a, we're, we're seeing group? the converse. Yeah, any age group. But I think that it's the conversation is happening in a much more open way and we're seeing like a lot of books about it and I think that it's becoming more commonly discussed and that's always a big shift. So is that, there's Janet, John, Tom and Bob, right? And they all have sex with each other equally? Oh, there's a million different ways for these relationships But to in work, that particular, you know, do you see those scenarios? It's just the human kind of instinct to like one person to be a little bit jealous or another person to feel a little bit more, um, you know, left out, all that kind of thing. I just, how long can those situations, I just, I mean, we're going off track now, but I read that <laughs> and thought, does that really work? <laughs> I think it really does work for some people. I think the thing is, is there's no, there's no set way of doing it. But the important thing is, and, you know, the, the clues are in the name ethical and consensual non-monogamy is every person involved is aware of the scenario and consent is given and that that's what makes the the systems operate right final question from our listeners before um or kind of throw it to any other business is sex helpful for pelvic floor strengthening yes and pelvic floor strengthening is helpful for sex so we know that the pelvic floor, that hammock of muscles that kind of sit from the kind of the tailbone to the coccyx. And so that of course, of... as you're speaking right now, Kate, I am pulling the pencil up, which is um, <laughs> you just can't help but talk about pelvic floor strengthening without doing it. Sorry. Yes. Go on. No, I'm good. We should be doing it. We should all be doing it. Um, but we know that the, the hammock of muscles and basically that they play a really big role in sexual function because the, the vagina, so the internal canal kind of sits through the middle of them, which is why we see that people struggle with things like incontinence, particularly after there's been big pressure. So things like pregnancy, after childbirth, that once the muscles are weakening, that we see that, you know, incontinence is a huge problem, particularly for women, you know, across the lifetime as they age, because these, these muscle groups are weakening. Um, but having a toned pelvic floor a is important for penetration being comfortable. So we actually know that when it's too tight, that it can make sex really uncomfortable and can cause sexual dysfunctions and that can create pain. But that when they are toned, A, it makes penetration comfortable, but B, that it plays an important role in orgasm, which is a wave of muscular contractions. So oh. it can make orgasm stronger. So it can deepen orgasm. Mm. Yeah. So is there a time when it's too late for people? Because people might be listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, I should really have done more post-children. Is it too late to kind of get going and, and help strengthen those? No, it's never too late. And, you know, it plays a big role in sexual functioning, but also incontinence and, you know, being comfortable. And a, a brilliant friend of mine has just written a book called Strong Foundations, which is about pelvic floor across the lifetime, pelvic floor health and... I think one of the things that she said was, people said, isn't that a bit niche? And it's something like 50% of women are struggling with their pelvic floors right. across the lifetime. You know, how can we say that's niche? I'm sure that book would be brilliant for them, but give us, if you can, quick exercises. That is it, is it the classic? Is it pulling up the pencil? Yes, so there's um, two types of exercises that are recommended. One is the kind of um, short 
short, sharp tensing and releasing. Like a pulse almost. Yes, like a pulse. And then kind of lifting and holding for 10 and then releasing for 10. And we're saying that you should be doing these kind of a couple of times a day. But really, I think the rule is doing them at all is is useful. Can I ask a question? If you had a penis inside you and you did your exercise, would the person be able to feel it? Yeah. Right. But I mean, you might not want to stop the flow of sex and say, can you feel me doing my exercises? <laughs> but it's, it, <laughs> what's happening it's, in there? Because um, when, you're, when you're doing it, when you're doing those exercises, you're kind of trying to imagine, obviously, squeezing something very tight. Um, mm. And that then you kind of wonder if, if it's as, you know, if it's what you imagine, because you can't see it. <laughs> yeah. And no, and they can be part of sex. And often, if you're having sex with a partner with a penis, then they can feel if you have an orgasm, that kind of wave of contractions, that kind of pleasurable wave, because the, the muscles are playing a big part in in that orgasmic process. So it's both a brain and body experience. Mm. Um, and orgasms can happen on your own. They can happen, you know, obviously in penetrative sex, other ways of achieving orgasm, many ways of achieving orgasms. How good are orgasms for us? They're really good for us. They release a whole kind of cocktail of neurochemicals that... Um, can make us feel relaxed, can make us feel sleepy, so can really help with falling asleep, but can also make us feel connected. But they just, the the wave of hormones, um, the neurochemicals just makes us feel good. But also, it's a gift to self. You know, it's the way that the, the body was designed. And I think that it's an important part of also exploring what feels good for you and then you can also take that into partnered sex and it might be that that's something that's changed so whether someone's had cancer treatment for example and the the way they a feel about their body has changed but the way that their body is responding has changed and it might be about relearning that or you know menopause is another perfect example that it might feel that orgasm has changed after menopause and we need to get to know ourselves again Um, Thank you so much and brilliant uh, answers to all those questions. And there is so much more in the book as well that people should go out and buy and have on your bookshelf, I think. Uh, If nothing else, I think your teenagers will pull out and learn a lot from as well. (laughs) Um, uh, We've just kind of, I think, really just taken the top of the subject there, haven't we? There's so much more to talk about. But you're brilliant. Thank you very much, Kate Moyle, for coming on The Midpoint and giving such great answers. Thank you, Gabby. Well, I hope that helped. A huge thanks to Kate for sharing her expertise with us today. Let me know if you found this episode useful and do share it with your friends or even your partner if you did. Kate's book, The Science of Sex, is out now and she also has a podcast called The Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Thanks to Spiritland Productions for putting this episode together. But my biggest thanks is to you for keeping me company. I'll catch you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 